0: You have probably watched a television show called Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, if you've watched it, you probably noticed that uh, quite frequently on when they're, when they're doing Hockey Night in Canada, they'll have a segment called Hometown Heroes, right? Well, they'll have a map and little red dots on the map. And they'll zoom into it. And they'll focus on a hometown and an NHL player from that hometown. And you watch this really dreadfully boring interview where the hockey player says stuff like, yeah, no, for sure, like 12 times, um, very engaging television. But you, you, you learn about the hometown through the eyes of that person, and they're, they're, the, they're declared the hero of that area, right? So Sidney Crosby, one of the most well-known players in the NHL right now, he's from a place called Cole Harbor, not Vancouver, but uh, Nova Scotia. And he's really put this this small... Town, His hometown on the map, it, people even said that uh, before, people who lived there, there was about 30,000 people who lived there. When they were writing mail, they wouldn't put Coal Harbor on the mail because nobody knew where Coal Harbor was. They would put kind of like the region or the next biggest city on there with their postal code because they were a little embarrassed about living in Coal Harbor. But now it's Sydney Crosby, they're like, Coal Harbor, sit, hometown of the best player in the world, right? So, so Crosby's kind of been declared this, this hometown hero. Of Harbour, what, what we have in our passage here this morning, Luke chapter 4, is, is we have uh, the story of Jesus coming to his hometown. And he declares himself the hero of this hometown. So, so we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 4. We're, we're going to look at the text. Uh, we're we're going to see uh, what's in the passage. And then we're going to look at, at kind of two implications of the passage. The first one is that there's a hero who frees. And secondly, there's a hero who flees. So we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to learn about a hero who frees and then a hero who flees. So if you have a a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you as well. Luke chapter 4, starting verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which is like a region, kind of like Fraser Valley, okay? And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So before we keep going, let's think a little bit of the context here. Um, in Luke, what we've had so far in the first few chapters of the book of Luke is there was the, the announcement that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be born. The, God came to, to Mary, who was a virgin, hadn't had a a baby yet, and, and spirit comes, and she conceives, and she gives birth to Jesus, and then we have the story of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, kind of like his initiation into public life. From his baptism, he goes off and he spends some time in the wilderness being tempted by the devil to see the devil tries the same kinds of things he tried on Adam in the garden. Like, oh, I don't know if you're understanding God properly here. Here's some something that I want you to think about. I can give you anything you want. And Jesus responds to every single one of the devil's temptations rightly. And he comes out of the out of the, the wilderness. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient in everything that, that he had been called to do. And now, in, in Luke's gospel, we have Jesus in his first kind of public ministry. He returns from the wilderness. He comes into the Galilee region, comes into the Fraser Valley kind of area. And he starts having a bit of an itinerant, traveling, preaching ministry. Where, as he goes places... People are like, wow, that guy's pretty good at talking. He's a really engaging guy. He's great. Have you heard this guy talk? Oh, he's coming to, sit to our synagogue this morning. That's awesome. Have you, have you heard him talk before? He's kind of building a reputation. And then eventually he comes to his hometown of, of Nazareth. And he comes in, he enters, and, and he uh, goes there on, on, a, on a synagogue day. He goes into a synagogue service. And the way uh, these services would have gone was you start off with some singing, And then there's kind of like an assigned prayer that you would do. And then someone would be handed a a scroll of scripture and they would stand up to read it. And then once they've read the passage, the the, the person would sit down and deliver the sermon, which I'm disappointed there's no stool for me to sit down on. Because apparently it's good enough for Jesus, but not for here in Tri-City. So it's fine. I get it. It's a different culture. It's all good. So the person who read the scripture would sit down and then they would give kind of like a devotional, a homily, uh, like a daily bread. If you've had that devotional book before, where there's a little scripture and then a little devotional written about it. And then after the devotional, there'd be kind of a priestly blessing on the group and they would all go home. So what we have here in the scene is Jesus, this itinerant minister who's been developing a reputation, has come into his hometown and has been handed the scroll So that he can do the work that that day of actually reading the scripture and then providing the message afterwards. So, uh, chapter or sorry, verse 17 of Luke 4. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled out the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So Jesus is handed the scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61, which is talking all about this coming deliverer who's going to come and and make all things fantastic and great and lead lead to human flourishing. And Jesus reads this passage and then he sits down and all the eyes are fixed on this popular traveling teacher. And everyone's waiting for what this guy's going to say, right? What's Joseph's boy going to tell us? Everyone's so proud. They're looking at him with their eyes kind of glazed over. And the aunt from across the street is like, I remember when he was a kid. And everyone's very excited to hear what this Jesus has to say. And what he tells them is that actually this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone hears this and they're thinking, oh, man, this is amazing. Jesus is great. What's not to like about Jesus, right? Right. Joseph, boy, we we love this, guys. It seems like a very typical service at a synagogue, but but it quickly turns to anything but typical. Because after reading the scripture and giving this very nice message about how this, this coming deliverance is being fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus decides to become less meek and mild, a little more pokey with the sermon, okay? So here's how he keeps going. Verse 23 He said to them, doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three and six months, three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus goes from saying, you know, this coming deliverance that we're all expecting while this is being fulfilled in your hearing and everyone's wiping tears away, very proud of Jesus, Joseph's boy. And then Jesus gets a little pokey and says, here's the deal. You guys are all going to reject me. You're going to start saying things to me like, physician, heal yourself, which is a, a proverb, which meant prove that you're actually the guy you say you are. Right? We have all these reports of you doing all these amazing things. Okay, fine. Prove it. Jesus is telling his hometown. He's, he's telling the guy he grew up in elementary school with and that lady across the road who made him cookies. He's telling them, look, you're going to reject me, the Lord's servant, just like Israel was rejecting God in the time of Elijah. Jesus compares his hometown people to one of the darkest seasons in Israel's history when there were so few people willing to actually follow the Lord in that season. So he talks about Elijah and Elisha and their ministries. And so let's think about that for a little bit, just to help us kind of see why Jesus brought these things up. So Elijah was a prophet to the people of Israel. The prophet's job is to go and to rally the troops, to, you know, prompt them to repent of their sins and come back into right relationship with God. And Elijah was doing that in a season where a lot of Israel was worshiping a God named Baal. And people weren't really responding to Elijah's message. And then there was this famine that came across the land. And Elijah, rather than ministering amongst his own people who had rejected the Lord, starts ministering into some other places among Gentile, non-Jewish, non-Israelite people. And in one of these occasions, he, he was ministering to a, a woman, a, a widow, in a place called Zarephath. So here was the scene of one of the things that he did with this, with this woman. Uh, he sees her out and about collecting sticks. And he goes up to her and says, uh, I'm hungry. Can you make me some bread? And she looked at him and said, of course you're hungry. There's a famine. Welcome here. And he's like, okay, great. So we're both hungry. So make me some bread. Okay, she's like, look, uh, I, I don't have very much flour and oil at home to make bread. That's why I'm out here collecting sticks, because I'm going to cook them, and then my son and I will eat them, and then we'll probably die. Okay, so the bread thing seems off the table, stranger. Elijah tells her, no, no, go home. I know you have only a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, but, but God will, God's going to make sure that you don't run out. So just keep using the flour and the oil and keep baking bread, and, and you'll see she goes home and she goes and she makes some bread and the next morning she wakes up and there's still more flour and oil and she makes bread and the next morning and the next morning. And Elijah ends up kind of staying with this family for a while. And the Lord provides food day after day in the midst of a famine where food is scarce, where water is scarce. The Lord provides bread for this family day after day after day, not to an Israelite family, to a family outside of Israel a Gentile family, because Israel at that point were rejecting the Lord. So Elijah was doing this fantastic ministry outside of God's people. Elisha was the guy who took over after Elijah. He, he was the guy who was the next man up once Elijah was done his ministry. And Elisha also ministered uh, amongst the people of Israel, but also did some really amazing things outside of the people of Israel. One, one of those encounters was with a guy named uh, Naaman, Naaman who was like a military leader for Syria. And he was involved with all kinds of different conquests and and, and leadership. And the problem with Naaman is that he had leprosy. He tried all kinds of things to cure himself of leprosy. And he heard about this Elisha, who might actually be able to bring healing to him. And so he goes to him and he sees Elisha. And Elisha says, here's the deal. I need you to go in the water right right next to us. I need you to go in there a few times, come out, go in a few times, come out, and you'll be healed. And Naaman's like, this is crazy. Like, if you just want me to go into a body of water and come out and be healed, we have better lakes in Syria than you have here. So he walks away mad, and Naaman's attendants are like, well, let's give it a shot, right? Like, you have leprosy? He says it'll go away. It's just, what's the worst that could happen? So Naaman, the Syrian military leader, goes in and out of the water. As many times as Elisha tells him, he comes out and he's cleaned. He's healed of his leprosy. A, a Syrian military official leader, not an Israelite. Did God do this miracle for? Jesus is telling his hometown. You know that really terrible time in our history when everyone was rejecting God and God started doing works outside of the people of Israel? That's you guys, hometown. You're going to hear about my ministry and you're going to say, wow, is this Jesus. Prove it. He has to prove himself that he's actually who he says he is. He's telling his hometown a very pokey message. He's basically saying, look, you guys are going to be just like the worst that Israel's ever been. You're going to reject what God is actually doing in the world. And then verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. This is uh, quite a scene change, right? Jesus shows up to his hometown, traveling rabbi, great reputation and gets handed the scroll. Cause why not? He's Jesus, the homeboy that everyone loved Jesus, right? Right. Reads a passage, sits down, explains it. Everyone's like, I love Jesus. That was amazing. Then Jesus goes a little bit longer in his sermon, and the crowd completely turns on him. They've become filled with such fury and rage at what Jesus is telling them that, that, hey, by the way, you're going to reject what the Lord is doing. That that great deliverance you've been waiting for, you're going to reject it. And they get filled with rage. And fury and wrath and they decide rather than than praise him and say, man, isn't he such a great guy? Isn't that Joseph's son? They say, let's kill Joseph's son. Uh, throwing Jesus off a cliff or throwing someone off a cliff was like the way to take the law into your own hands, right? It's like the, the public mob way to stone someone because stoning someone was usually something that was done kind of under some kind of authority, Given to say, okay, this person deserves the death penalty, so let's stone them to death. But if you don't want to go through like the proper channels, because I don't know, it's going to take time, and you got a lawyer up, and there's going to be paperwork and red tape, let's just throw them off a cliff. So, so the mob decides, okay, we got to take care of this guy. Who does he think he is? Let's kill him. Jesus in his hometown went from hero to uh, basically everyone wanting to kill him in the course of one sermon. From tears being wiped away of pride to, to chasing him down to try to throw him off a cliff to kill him. So look, in Luke's gospel, what we have is Jesus starting his public ministry in his hometown through a sermon in the, syna- in the synagogue where he declares himself the deliverer. The deliver that they've been waiting for, he claims to be. And then he tells everyone who's in attendance that they're going to reject him and the Lord's work, just like Israel rejected the work of the Lord in the times of Elijah and Elisha. And everyone wants to kill him. So that's the story in Luke chapter 4. So now let's think a little bit about what we can learn from this. Uh, two things we're going to think about. First of all, a hero who frees. And then we're going to talk about a hero who flees. So, so first, let's think a bit about a hero who frees. Um, the text that Jesus preaches from in this sermon that he says he fulfills is from Isaiah 61. Here's, here's the part of our text where it was read, Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A key theological idea that we need to have to understand what Jesus is doing in this sermon is understanding this idea called the year of Jubilee. So the year of Jubilee was something that was supposed to take place in the, in the nation of Israel every 50 years. Where basically, uh, the the word Jubilee uh, is just kind of a word for like a ram's horn blowing. So, you know, you turn the the page of the calendar. It's time for the year of Jubilee. It's the 50th year. And someone goes out with a ram's horn and blows it. And that's supposed to be basically like a massive reset button on the land of Israel. Where if if you had to sell your land in your business in order to pay your bills, and now you don't have land anymore, you would receive your land back. Or if you were you couldn't pay your bills and you decided you had to give yourself to be a servant to another family, you and your 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 kids, and maybe that's been a whole generation where your whole family has been servants to this other more wealthy family. when the reset button gets hit, everyone gets their land back, everyone gets their freedom back. It's like this big the market housing market's going crazy, okay reset it's crazy, it's too expensive. We're going back to the normal world, okay. This is what the year of Jubilee was all about. A leveling of the playing field so that everybody could flourish. This is what Jesus is basically talking about. He's saying, look, this, this Jubilee, this cosmic Jubilee that Isaiah 61 points towards, this, this making of all things new, this bringing freedom to the oppressed and bringing health to the sick, that that thing we've all been waiting for, I'm the one who's going to bring it, is Jesus' point. See, what, what this passage is really talking about is that Jesus is the one who's going to consummate this state of, of jubilee. He's going to release us from what we're bound to. He's going to free us for human flourishing. And that's so critical for us to understand when we're thinking about what is Christianity all about. Sometimes it's, it's tempting to think that Christianity is primarily about like a like a don't do this list, right? But in reality, what Christianity is moving human history towards is human flourishing. That Christianity has as its goal, the the flourishing of every human from every tribe, tongue, nation, and place that, that every single people group will flourish the way that God intends humans to actually flourish. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing I'm bringing this kind of human flourishing and and ultimately his work on the cross is what secures our human flourishing yet to come, right? The the people in his hometown, we're going to quote the proverb physician, heal yourself, which is kind of like a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. When people are screaming at him, if you're a deliverer, deliver yourself, man, you think you're so great. Take yourself off the cross. But in reality, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's giving up of himself to deliver Us from our sins so that through his work, we, we can have, we can repent and we can believe the message in the person of Jesus Christ. We can receive the forgiveness of our sins and have the hope of eternal human flourishing yet to come where there will be no oppression, where there will be no poverty, where there will be no sickness. That's, that's the great human hope of the future. And so any time that we have an opportunity for, for human flourishing here and now, it's a, it's a foretaste, it's an appetizer of that eternal human flourishing that will come to those who repent and believe the gospel. So, so Jesus talks in, in this passage about um, being good news to the poor. See, it's so amazing that Jesus, through his life and ministry, can actually bring hope. Because one of the great things that poverty does to someone is it makes them despair. Because they see no way out of this situation. They don't have the means to improve their situation. They don't see a, a future in which things can change. They don't have the resources. They don't have the connections. They don't have the capital to make their life go from terrible to better. So, so what do poor people need? They need hope that things are going to get better see whenever there's a taste of people moving from poverty into flourishing here and now this is a taste it's a it's an appetizer of what human flourishing will happen in the eternal state this is why it's a very good thing for Christians in our communities to be dedicated to caring for the people in our midst Because the church is supposed to be this embassy. It's supposed to be this outpost of of what the eternity is going to look like. So if there's someone in our midst who has no hope because they're so impoverished, they they have no means to go from here to there, the Christian response is to come alongside and say, I'm going to give up my vacation so you can pay for your mortgage. Because that way you'll actually have a chance to make it in this world. See, the Christian response to those in our communities who are impoverished is is one of generosity because we recognize that Jesus brings hope to the hopeless. And it's really hard to think about the hope of the future when you imagine to yourself, I wonder if this is the month I'm going to be evicted. And I didn't think I was going to be that homeless family, but it looks like we might be. See, there's everything right with the Christian community rallying around the poor in our midst To provide for them what they need in order to live a sustainable life. And there's everything wrong with the Christian community when we come to church and we know someone can't pay their bills and we know we can help them and we sit and we do nothing. Because what Christianity is about is human flourishing. So don't, don't hear me say it's about this health and wealth. You're going to get everything you want here and now, but if you're impoverished and, and, and you, if someone else is impoverished and you have the means to help them, give them a taste of what heaven will be like. Give them a a little appetizer of what the real main course is going to taste like one day. Right? The poor actually have good news preached to them. The the liberty, there's liberty for captives and the oppressed. It's this idea of freedom, right? This is why there's everything right with Christians being involved in ministries like the International Justice Mission. Which goes out across all over the world and it, it finds people in situations where they're enslaved and they have no hope of being released. And they work through the legal system to try to release these people from their slavery. They have numbers that are staggering of hundreds of millions of people who are enslaved today. That, that there has not been a time in human history until now where, where there are more slaves out there. There are more slaves now than there ever has been in history. And Christians hear things like that. And they think, oh my gosh, I should give my life to helping people get out of these situations, right? It's almost like the ministry of Jesus is about human flourishing. And that we should be able to help people who are captives be released and and liberated. But it's not just slavery all around the world. It's, It's also oppressions and and. uh, being captive in in life situations here and now. This is what addictions is. It's this box you live in that there's no getting out of it because you're so stuck in in a habitual pattern where where anything that happens is just destruction that that you have no way out. That's why there's everything right with Christians being involved with things like rehab places and helping people get out of their addictions so that they can actually have a human flourishing life. Because that's what Christianity is about. It's, It's to lead To human flourishing, not just a list of things not to do. Or when Jesus talks about the recovery of sight for the blind, this is talking about healings, right? There's no doubt that God can and does use every physical ailment that we have to prepare us for eternity. But that doesn't mean that God intends for human sickness to be a part of our eternity, that's why we should be praying for people when they're sick that God would bring his kingdom to bear in this situation. Give them a foretaste, Lord, of the healing that's yet to come. Give, give them an appetizer. When we're praying, Lord, would your kingdom come? What we're asking him to do is in this situation, would it feel more like heaven? Like what it's going to feel like for eternity? Would you give us a glimpse of it? Would you, would you give us a little taste so that we can give people the hope of what the future is actually going to look, like. look, the Lord might bring healing, he, he might not, but we plead with him to bring it to give us that little appetizer of what's yet to come. See, I, I think this passage is compelling us as people who want to follow Jesus, that, that we should be the kind of people who fight for human flourishing. I think oftentimes Christians become known as, as the people who are against things. Right? We're, we're, we're known mostly because we're against this and we're against that and we're against this. But we should be known for being for human flourishing. So that we're, we're the kind of people who are going to fight for all other kinds of people to flourish the way God wants them to. And not, not just to give them a good life here and now, but so that we can point them towards the eternal life yet to come, which Jesus bought with his blood. And that comes through repentance and forgiveness. That we point them to the gospel, but we're for human flourishing. So so when we talk about things like sexual ethics, it's not because we're so against all these other things. It's because we're for flourishing. And we think God has designed a way for sex to be used. That's going to lead to human flourishing. So that's why we're for it. When we talk about how to use our money, we think that there's ways to use it that are going to lead to human flourishing. When, When we talk about all kinds of different really Nitty-gritty things like providing sustainable jobs and providing supportive housing and all kinds of nitty-gritty details of life. The reason we do it is not because we're against things, but because we're for human flourishing. And we pray that through our involvement in those things, people see the Savior who's going to win and has won our eternal flourishing. Because this Jesus, who preached a sermon in his hometown, who declared himself the hero, what he's all about is the forgiveness of sins for eternal human flourishing he's the hero who frees and the second thing for us to think through he's the hero who flees so in this scene jesus is uh he preaches his message and then he runs away from the crowd so maybe that's why i'm talking about a hero who flees but it's mostly not why um I'm talking about a hero who flees because what we have in this text is this, this idea of of Jesus fleeing from, from working in one area to, to work in all areas of, of life. So in other, we could call it, this point could have been called like Jesus is a hero on the move, but on the move doesn't rhyme with freeze. So I didn't choose that. But that's what this is about, right? That, that Jesus is telling his hometown, look, you're going to reject me, but that's okay because this message, this, this ministry I'm about, it's, a, it's, a, it's on the move. I'm, I'm going to go out to other places that aren't expecting it, and I'm going to bring them the good news of great hope and great joy of, of freedom, of flourishing, right? This is what he's talking about in Luke chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. In truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah and the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. See, see Jesus is making really clear in his first sermon to his hometown that this thing I'm about, that this mission movement of human flourishing, if you choose to reject it like they did in the, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, I'm, the message is still going to move. It's going to go outside of this. If you choose to reject it, it's going to go out to the Gentiles and they're going to have an opportunity to, to hear this gospel. This is a big deal for Luke. In, in Luke's um, part two. Of his of his message, where that he wrote, Luke was kind of part one, the book of Acts was part two. Luke started Acts in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where he said, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, the reality is that the good news of Jesus, the one who brings human flourishing here and now, but ultimately in in the eternal state yet to come. It's, it's not just a message that's meant for the us's. It's a message that's meant for the us's and all of the them's. It's meant to move. It's meant to flee, not, not to leave something behind, but to flee forward in an aggressive, proactive pursuit of people who aren't expecting to hear this kind of good news that the gospel brings it's a message that moves. It's, it's a good news that's on the move, which is why Romans 10 is such a key passage for Christians. When we think about the fact that Jesus has a, has a mission that's on the move, that he has a message that's on the move, that's why Paul can write something like Romans 10 verse 9, where he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. be saved. See, see, because the good news of Jesus is on the move, it's the disciples of Jesus who know and believe this good news, who also go on the move because we know that this message, if you believe it, regardless of what your ethnic background is, if you believe this message, you will be saved. You're going to be a part of that eternal human flourishing yet to come. That the gospel message is not meant to be held back and looked at and adored from our own insulated communities. It's meant to be cherished, and then we should have a disposition of tilting forward on mission. That the church is not just, it's not a building, it's not even just a people, it's a people with a mission. Who have a forward tilt in their life because they know that this message needs to get out to all kinds of people all across the world. That's why Paul writes later in Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Look, th- this is why Tri-City Church exists. is because there are Christians in a region who decided we can't just hold the gospel back in our own little communities and cherish it to ourselves. This is a message that needs to go out and be in places where there aren't places where this is being actually preached. This is why church planning exists globally. Where we partner with places like MB Missions. And all kinds of other agencies who are in different countries. To try to bring the gospel to places where they haven't actually heard of Jesus yet. Because how are they going to call on him and, and be saved if no one actually tells them his name? They, they can't. They won't. If we don't go. If we don't send. If we aren't. Involves he, this is what Jesus is about. He's on the move to create a people for himself. He wants to save into his family. People who right now don't know that they are part of his family. They've never heard the name of Jesus. But because the church is on a mission and because the church is tilting forward with the gospel, one day they will hear the name of Jesus and their heart will be warmed and they'll come to saving faith and they'll be a part of the human flourishing for an eternal life because Christians like you and I refused to just stay comfortable. Instead, we insisted on letting the spirit disrupt us, to uproot us, to move us forward because people need to hear. So look, my my prayer for churches that that I'm involved with, with, you know, the the churches that I'm involved in planting this and with Northview, my my prayer, and for Tri-City, my my prayer for us is that we'd be the kind of people who, who don't settle and get comfortable. But we're the kind of people who recognize that Jesus is on the move. The gospel needs to go forward. We have to be proactive. This won't happen by accident. We have to be willing to get up and actually go. We have to be willing to to take out our money and actually spend it so we can buy things like property to build things like churches so we can spend money on things like for plane tickets for missionaries to go out and plant churches in places. It's going to take money. It's going to take work. It's going to take tears. It's going to take everything, but the mission is worth it because Jesus is going to lead people to human flourishing now and eternally so. So this gets really practical for us, right? Because let's say Tri-City grows. And it keeps growing because people hear the gospel and they decide they want to come and hear more about Jesus. They decide they want to follow him. And now you're starting to realize, I don't have quite the same elbow room as I once had. Now there's two things we could do in that situation. One is hold back. And look at what we have going on and say, let's not change anything because we've got a good thing going. Or we could be like what Jesus wants us to be like and actually be willing to tilt forward and say, no, what are we going to have to sacrifice so that more people can hear about the gospel? What's it going to look like? What do I have to give up to make room for someone else to hear this good news? Maybe it's going to involve giving money to buying a piece of property somewhere else where you can build a bigger building. Maybe it's going to involve having a different service time that that Matt's going to come up here and plead with you. Can you please go to one of these other service times so we have room for other people? And at, at that moment, we as Christians have an option to say either, I don't know, I like being comfortable, or I want to be on a mission. I want the gospel to reach people who don't hear it. I want Jesus to save people who don't know that they're his. So that means I'll give up my comfortable state, and I'll be on mission moving forward with God. Look, we we have a savior who's on the move. We have a hero who wants to, to, to know, to have people know that he's not just the hero of one tribe at one time. He's the hero of the whole story of human history. That the way you can be saved by this hero is by hearing the good news that Jesus came. He lived, he died, he rose again. He's coming back to make all things new. And if we're willing to repent of our sin and believe that gospel, human flourishing is our hope and our freedom and our future. We should probably get that message out. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good. You proved your goodness to us through uh, all kinds of ways, but but mostly through the sending and the sacrifice of your son. And Father, we're thankful that he rose again in victory, that, that he's returning again to make all things new. That human flourishing is our freedom. Lord, I I pray that you would help us be the kind of people who would pursue the flourishing of others. And I pray that you would help us be the kind of people who would be willing to give up of our comforts and our luxuries for the sake of reaching the unreached. Lord, you have so many people in these cities who belong to you. Would you move us to tell them about your son so that they would come and know you and love you and follow you the rest of their lives? pray that you would move for your glory's sake. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.